Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of GRE Bytes, your weekly bite-sized episode on everything grad school admissions and GRE prep. I'm Davis, uh, educator with 10 years of experience. And I'm Orion, founder of Stellar GRE. Thanks for joining us and feel free to reach out anytime at stellargre at gmail.com. So today's episode, you know, just recap on many other episodes. We've talked about time, we've talked about emotional responses, we've talked about, um, you know, different ways that people can get trapped. And a lot of it comes down to, as you've said, these, you know, underlying emotional coping mechanisms that we have when we're taking a test, which mm-hmm. a lot of times boils down to like just basic feeling of anxiousness, test anxiety. Mm-hmm. People don't like to be like under pressure taking a test. Mm-hmm. So let like, what is the, what is some, you know, uh, mindfulness strategy or the basic thing to just kind of go to the root underneath everything and, and take care of test anxiety. Test anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. So, uh, I would say that up to 20% of students' scores are based on, is based on performative factors. It has, that means that it has less to do with what they actually know and more to do with how they're showing up on the day of the exam. 20%, that's a huge yeah. proportion of the variance. And there are three main performative factors on the GRE. There's test anxiety. There is, um, let's say, sustained mindfulness which means being consistently in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And that's related to mitigating carelessness. Mm-hmm. And then there's concentrational endurance, which is, can you keep that up for four and a half straight hours? Mm-hmm. And those three things can really detrimentally impact student scores if they're not addressed proactively. All right. So today we'll talk about test anxiety, okay? How to master test anxiety. First of all, I got some bad news, which is, you're probably gonna have some degree of test anxiety. It's, it's not realistic to anticipate that we can eliminate this entirely. Because people care. You're not just gonna go in and just like not care at all about how you do. Well, that's a good point, is that maybe the anxiety is a sign that this is important to you, mm-hmm. which makes sense. You've probably spent two to four months preparing for this. You've spent a lot of time, energy, and money taking the test, preparing for the test. You wanna get and into grad school. future writing on it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a high stakes testing environment. Yeah. Um, so it, it makes sense that you would care people, about it. They're involved. People are involved. Yeah. So what we're talking about is how do you remain present to the process while remaining more or less outcome independent? That's hard to do because it's like, all right, I'm not outcome independent. I need to get a 165 or else none of this matters. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that that's the goal. And I work with students to, to score at that level all the time. But that I need to score at this or everything is pointless and I'm not going to, that thinking is just putting a lot of unnecessary pressure on a student mm-hmm. that I don't think that pressure is squeezing out better performance. So, okay. So what are, you bring up a good, good uh, kind of framework to understand this. Like what are the thought patterns that, sh- that mm-hmm. like a person can self-reflect and say, Oh, that's anxiety. That's, mm-hmm. that's a factor that's not actually going to improve my performance. Mm-hmm. I need to mitigate it somehow. Yeah. So we want to, we're not going to be able to get rid of anxiety entirely, but we do want to lower it to, let's say, manageable levels, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? So uh, my other hat is that I'm a clinical psychologist, right? right? And one of the things that I often tell my clients is that behind every feeling is a thought. Sometimes that thought is very, very quick and we miss it. Sometimes that thought is more or less unconscious, but behind every feeling is a thought. We know this because thoughts are like, they move like lightning. Emotions, sometimes they can come on very fast, but they're still significantly slower than mental impulses, mm-hmm. okay? Now, 
You're free to think whatever you want, Davis. That's your right. Within your privacy of your own mind, you can think whatever you want. However, you are not free to feel however you want as a consequence of what you choose to think. In the context of the GRE, or you're telling me just like, in general. And, well, we're going to get to the GRE specifically yeah. in a second. But like, if if you're thinking thoughts like "I can't do this," "I'm running out of time," "I'm going to fail," then you feel anxious, nervous. You can't yourself. not feel those things. That's my point. You're, you're not free to feel confident if you are allowing yourself to think and believe those thoughts. Right. You can think those thoughts if you want to. I wouldn't recommend it. Right. You're free to do that, but you're not free to feel. Because the feeling follows the thought. Exactly. You're tied to that feeling Mm -hmm. if you allow certain thoughts. That's right. So certain thoughts are not your friend. Mm -hmm. These thoughts, which, you know, you probably have your own idiosyncratic variations, listener, but they generally fall under, I'm running out of time, I can't do this. I'm failing. Everything has been pointless. I'm not going to get into grad school. They start to catastrophize potentially. Um, like projecting into the future. That's what catastrophizing means exactly. Yeah. A negative outcome much further down the road, which yeah. obviously demotivates effective behavior in the present moment because if it's all lost anyway. What's the point? What's the point yeah. of continuing? I've had students just like get up and walk out of the test, you know, because they just weren't doing. Everything. They were convinced. Well, they don't. They didn't have that information yet. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they. They got a couple of questions that they didn't know the answers to, but they, that started a, a negative a thought spiral. Slope, yeah. And then they just got to the point where it's like, it's pointless. There's, uh, I've already blown it, so there's no point in me continuing. And they just get up and walk out of the testing center. I can understand it from within their emotional, subjective experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not super ineffective behavior, but you know, I can understand why so, someone might feel that way. So just baseline, is it possible, say you blow five minutes on like the second question, is it possible to still come out with like 165 higher on the well, It is. I remember when I took the test myself 11 years ago to get into grad school, um, I was about 10 or 15 minutes into my second quantitative section and the screen just went black in the middle of the test. Dang. Like, do you get a... You do. You have to like call an administrator over. Well, you know, I fiddled with the mouse and the keyboard and the monitor. It's like I didn't understand what happened, and you know, I hurriedly got up and talked to, tried to get the proctor's attention, and he was on the phone and couldn't help me for a few minutes. And then he eventually came back over and he said, "Oh yeah, this happens all the time. You must have just nudged this cable with your foot without realizing it, and it put the." monitor cable out of the desktop uh-huh, port, uh-huh. and then suddenly the screen came back on, but I lost six or seven minutes in the middle of my section. And I was, you know, I could feel the fury building inside of me because I was, I felt like I was doing very well in that administration. Yeah. But then I was like, you know what, there's still time on the clock. I haven't lost this game yet. I, so now I just have to do everything like at, at 1.5 X speed. Right, right. And so it's like, it's time for me to put my game face on. Michael Jordan with the flu, and I got a perfect score. So it is possible to, okay. to, but it depends, to recover. It depends on what you do with that thought pattern once you once you exactly. Recognize. It had to do with my being able to wrest control of my thoughts in that moment because I was I was certainly being pulled into anger and panic, but I had to like block those thoughts energetically and replace them with thoughts that could still motivate and support effective behavior. Nope, there's still time on the clock. This is just a greater challenge, which means it's just going to be a greater glory when I am victorious at the end of the day. So, I mean, does that, I mean, does that mean that how to, you mentioned mastery of your anxiety. Is that just a force of will? You just got to block the negative thoughts and 
Well, that's part of them. So, so what is the strategy? The, the wax on, wax off strategy that I, I, I work with my patients and, and my students who come to me for test anxiety is block and replace. It's just a, a bread and butter cognitive behavioral therapy technique, which is two parts. Like it says, first, you got to block those thoughts. You actually have to actively resist them. You see it, you recognize what it is, and then you say no. You say, no, that's not true. No, I don't want to think that. And you don't want to think that because you know where that thought leads you. That thought will predictably lead you to anxiety and panic. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you want to feel in that moment. You want to maintain guardianship of your emotional state. And you can't do that if you allow any thought to come into your mind and proliferate. Mm -hmm. And to be, to be fair, I, I believe that you students are not actively evoking these panic-inducing thoughts in your mind. But it's, a natural, it's natural to the circumstance that you're in, taking a test and what you have. Yeah. They show up uninvited. Yeah. That's what I say. Yeah. The, the negative thoughts show up uninvited. They, they don't knock. They barge in. But if somebody were to like, if you were to come home one day, Davis, and there was like a strange man in your living room. That was not doing cool things. Would you say, hey, honey, it looks like we have a new roommate. Would you like a cup of tea? You'd be like, what are you doing in my house, man? Yeah. And you might not have been looking for a fight, but you have a fight on your hands and you defend your house and home, mm -hmm. I would think, right? Mm -hmm. So you weren't looking to think these anxiety-provoking thoughts, but there they are. That's what they do. They show up uninvited, those, those meanies. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so it's like, you have to say, what are you doing in here? You don't belong here, get out. Right. But you can't just say no. So you also want to replace it with a thought that the, the long phrase that I usually use is you want to place it with a thought that is the least pathological alternative that still fits the facts of the case. All right, the least down. pathological alternative that still fits the facts of the case. So if you have this thought like, I'm running out of time, I can't do this, you don't want to block and replace that with, I have all the time in the world and I can do anything. Right. Because that's just as unrealistic as the negative. We can be unrealistically positive too. Right. So we want to replace it with something that still fits the facts of the case, but that doesn't provoke a strong emotional like, response. There's still time on the clock. Let's see what I can do. Exactly. It's like, that was Let unfortunate. Yeah. I lost five or six minutes, but there's still time on the clock. I can do this. I'll just have to move a little bit faster. I can adapt and roll with it. And I can see that I can still make this work. Mm -hmm. That's not blowing sunshine. Well, but so the question there is if someone says, like, I can do this, as opposed to, like, let's see what I can do. Do you see a, a distinction there? Like, between one being that kind of pathological positive? I think I can do this is, is firmer and stronger. I would probably use that in that moment. I think maybe as a chain, I could start with, uh, let's see what I can do. No, I can do this. I just need to adapt this a little bit, and I can still I can emerge victorious yeah. in the end. Nice. So this block and replace thing, you might have to do a hundred times a day, but once you get better at like um, domesticating certain mm -hmm. negative thoughts, you don't have to do it as often. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is to um, block and replace them as early in the process as possible so that they don't trigger the concomitant uh, emotional reaction. Right, so that the feeling doesn't come. And exactly. Say. So if you can throw that thought out and replace it in the first few seconds, then maybe you can maintain that emotional equilibrium, which is going to help you to just objectively move through the test according to your training. Well, because the affirmative thought will also carry with it its own emotional 
you know, weight and momentum to keep you going forward. That's also true. I often tell students, like, in, in the absence of competing information, why not assume you've done everything right? I mean, you'll find out soon enough if that's true or not. If it's not true, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. Right. So why not assume that that random guess was correct? Right. To, to master the anxiety, to get rid of some sure. emotional baggage around it. Yeah, oh, that makes less sense. Why not? Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. That was another episode of GRE Bytes. Uh, tune back next week for another episode. Um, if you'd like to have any input on uh, future topics, please email um, stellargre at gmail.com and check us out at stellargre.com. Stellargre. Do we say that enough times? Stellargre. Yeah, okay. Right. Thanks, Davis. Bye.